When I started my sales career many, many moons ago, I started off in Tully sales. I was selling classified advertising for a local newspaper in the UK where I used to live. And one of the things we had in our classified section was every cubicle, you had a mirror in front of you. And it was there to remind you to smile when you were on the phone. Uh, but I wonder if you know how important the smile is now with your real estate business. Well, my guest today is going to share some of the insights with that. He also has a ton of experience in the real estate sales area and is going to be sharing some of his insights and thoughts, both in terms of what real estate professionals should be thinking about from a sales perspective and, and then also sort of currently with regards to the pandemic. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this week's guest. You're listening to the REI Branded Podcast, helping you build your real estate personal brand. If you want to stand out from the crowd, attract the right leads, right partners, and right clients every time, you're in the right place. My name is Paul Copcutter, and each week we'll be looking to decode and uncover what makes you, the real estate business owner, brandtastic. Each episode is intended to be valuable, cut to the chase, and actionable, so you can spend less time marketing your business and still get the results you want. Thank you for listening. Now let's get to work on making you brandtastic. Okay, welcome to this week's episode of the REI Branded Podcast. And I am extremely excited to have Daryl Davis with us today. Um, and for those of you who don't know Daryl, uh, let me share some of his accomplishments for you. Uh, he started his real estate career at 19 years old on Long Island, New York, uh, which is where he, he's currently joining us from and quickly climbed the ladder to become a top producer averaging six transactions a month, and then became a licensed broker and manager of a new office that became the number one listing and selling branch within its first six months of operation. Uh, he's a best-selling author with McGraw-Hill Publishing. Congratulations for his book, How to Become a Power Agent in Real Estate, and the author of two other books, including How to Design a Life Worth Smiling About, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh, he's the founder of the only year-long real estate coaching program, the Power Agent Program, which has proven results of agents doubling their income over their previous year. And Daryl is also a certified speaking professional. I know what it takes to, to get to that level. So that really is quite the accomplishment. It's the speaking profession's international measure of a professional platform skill, which is held by less than 2% of all speakers worldwide. So. It is quite a quite a thing to have that. Congratulations, Daryl, and, and welcome. Thank you. And after hearing my introduction, I'm thinking, Paul, how lucky you are to have me. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we are, exactly. <laughs> so before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about uh, uh, the pandemic. Um, yes. How... Uh, and what we're seeing up here in Canada is the pandemic has exploded the real estate market. It's gone crazy. I mean, I'm in a town uh, or a city called Hamilton, which is U.S. equivalent of Steeltown, with a with a Canadian version of Steeltown. Gotcha. And it's you know pretty blue collar. You know, I could have probably bought a semi-detached house for 200,000 five years ago, and you you can't touch anything under a half a million in the town now. Wow. It's just kind of crazy. So how, how have you seen 
the pandemic, how do you see the pandemic has been impacted the real estate industry? I have to ask you, is that half a million Canadian? Yeah, Canadian. <laughs> okay. So it's still Sorry. a good deal for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just a little US humor. And um, but anyway, I um whatever I noticed, yes, you're right, Paul, you're right. The pandemic has really uh reinvented the real estate industry, in my opinion. And part of the reason why I think we've seen such an increase uh in the uh sales price, the list price. And why things are selling so quickly is simply because I think what the pandemic did for people is point out to them just how important their shelter is. You know, we were telling people at the height of the pandemic, shelter in, lock it, you know, shelter in. Well, where were they sheltering in their home? So people, and this is why some industries like um, uh, uh, that, that are impacted or associated with real estate, like home improvement, for example, like anything that touched real estate, those stocks, those companies actually saw an increase during the pandemic because people were doing one of two things. They were either one, refinancing their house at the low interest rates and improving their properties or number two, which is what most people did, said, I'm out of here. I can't stay in my house. I've, I've been sheltered in here for six months. I'm ready to kill my spouse. I'm out of here. <laughs> and so they're like, <laughs> so the second uh, thing that people did was, you know, say I'm out of here and I'm going to just go buy my dream home. And I think that's why we've seen prices um, do what they've done. The other thing that I saw the pandemic really impact the real estate industry is real estate agents are have been notorious at uh, not adopting technology. And let me rephrase that. Not agents, but our industry, their profession of real estate professionals. Um, we're very slow in adopting new and cutting technology. And um, I think this has thrusted uh, agents into learning you know, how to do PowerPoint or or a keynote or how to use Zoom. And so it's forced agents to become more tech savvy. Um, and I think it has fundamentally changed the industry on, on a lot of levels, like that being one of it. And, um, you know, now some of the some of my students, Paul, they 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 had their best year during the pandemic sheltering in because they were doing listing presentations virtually. And uh, some of them were list properties they'd never seen. And time management was just more effective. I mean, they can do a lot more listing appointments and get more listings uh, virtually than actually getting in the car and going and seeing the property and seeing the homeowner. So um, I'm not saying that all listing appointments are now going to be virtual, but there is now that option, which is, is, is a good thing. Does that open up more of a market for an agent? So instead of you know, traditionally kind of being the local agent... Does that now say, well, okay, I'm in Long Island, but I could go and sell a, a house in Albany without a problem now because I don't need to be there. And so does that well, open, I up, open up their I, minds to do that versus? I always thought that that location should never be an issue anyway. Uh, so I don't think the technology, and here's why, this is what I, I tell our, our students, um, which by the way, Paul, we're big on metaphors and analogies. And um, that's what we teach our salespeople as opposed to scripts using metaphors. And, and one, for example, is when a homeowner says, you know, why should I list with you? You're in, you know, ABC town and I'm in XYZ. 
I'd say, well, you know, ma'am or sir, if you, you know, when you take, uh, if you know how to play chess, right? Um, you take the, now let's say you take the board and you take the pieces and you get on an airplane and you fly across the country. Uh, can you still play the game of chess? And the answer is, of course, because the rules of the game of chess doesn't matter where the pieces are or where the board is, as long as you know the rules of the game. And real estate's the exact same way. Real estate, there is knowing and understanding how to market a property, which is what I am as, as your agent. I'm a marketing agent, not a selling agent. My job is to take your property and market it and give it exposure to all the other pe people that might be interested in your property. So it doesn't matter where the house is. I know how to market, something like that. Right. Okay. With that increase in the market, the ability to do more during the pandemic, that yeah. does... Is that, does that run the risk of agents becoming maybe a little bit complacent or some agents being, I'm not going to say lazy wouldn't be the right word, but does that make it you know, appear to be an easier job than it, than it might, might be? That's interesting. Um, no, actually, I think, uh, Paul, what's happened during the pandemic, it's, it's not just agents, but also like your, your, your following of investors that you work with and the people that you help brand. What we probably also learned in this pandemic is how important your words are. You know, words matter. Communication, how you articulate, and um, so I don't think it's made it easier for agents. I'll give you for instance. Uh, it is not unheard of to have multiple offers, multiple offers on a property. So now that's going to change things. We're starting to see a little bit of a shift. I don't know when we're airing this, but so. But during this pandemic, we would see multiple offers on a house. So how does an agent win their uh, offer for their buyers when the listing agent, the homeowner has all these other choices? It's really through communication, through relationship, whether it's a relationship with the listing agent or how you communicate to that listing agent, how you follow up, how you put that package together, how you really validate. I don't like to use the word sell, how you validate your clients, the buyers, and how great they are for this property and for that seller. So I, I think in, in a lot of respects, it has people have it's raised the bar of our industry is what actually has happened. Well, that and those that aren't prepared to adapt, um, maybe not embrace the technology. Do you see them suffering because of that, or having to not survive in the industry? Yes, I mean agents who who um who haven't pivoted and embraced the change and recognized that they had to improve their skill and ability of communication um yeah we, you know a lot of agents have gotten out of real estate because of that right. and um so so yeah i think and and technology too i think agents you know listen paul i tell agents because we still have some people that are afraid of technology. You know, if we're honest, there's some agents <laughs> that still have VCRs <laughs> that, that are flashing 12. <laughs> they can't get it to stop flashing. And um, <laughs> God bless them. And so I tell them, listen, you don't have to, even the, even the tech uh, challenged uh, agents, I tell them, listen, you, if you look at your life up to this point, you probably have had successes. Uh, whether it was in in real estate or a previous job or in relationships or whatever, like so, the point is you're not a stupid person, and so don't get overwhelmed or feel like you're stupid. You just haven't learned it yet, and take one tech at a time. Same thing, like you're really great at. I know you are um, 
uh, not a coach, a consultant, you're a merge of the two, right? And I'm sure like when you're working with your people and the great job that you do with consulting slash coaching them is you tell them, let's break it down one, one step at a time. Don't be overwhelmed with the whole project. Cause when you look at the whole project, the whole thing to learn, whatever that thing is, uh, then you'll be overwhelmed. Then you do nothing. So inch, one of my favorite sayings I tell my students, Paul, inch by inch, life's a cinch, yard by yard, it's hard. So, Okay. And what technology do you feel is important? Be it an agent, maybe an investor, what are the things? You've mentioned Zoom, of course, but... Yep. What are the critical... By the way, I I own their stock, so I'd be happy (laughs) more people just use Zoom, please. Yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) I I sold mine at the wrong time. (laughs) Okay, well, <laughs> if it was before the last couple of days, because it's taken a real beating. So right. uh, uh, anyway, um, CRM, CRM. Uh, some people like, what does that stand for? Uh, contact Relationship Management. I like to call it, keep reminding me, whatever you want to call it. A CRM is <laughs> for the for the tech challenge. It's, it's a digital Rolodex. <laughs> so... To me, the CRM is the most important piece of any business. It doesn't matter what the business is, real estate, investing in real estate, um, doesn't matter. You need to have a CRM that where you can see your customers, your clients, your leads, follow up with them, automate that process, keep a record of it. You know, a lot of you know, one of I always call it farming. You know, when you you start mailing out pieces, and you know, it's always that's an old term. It's been around farming, but one of my students, Paul, recently called it gardening, and I said, "Man, I love that garden, not farming, gardening," because you know what you do with gardening is you don't just plant the seeds, right? You've got to water it, and you've got to get rid of the weeds. You've got to cultivate it. You got to talk to it, whatever, prey on it, but you gotta you gotta work it. And that's man, that's sales. That it doesn't, um, and it doesn't matter what you're selling. Again, talking about investing in real estate, if you've got a lead of a building that you want to or a property you want to purchase, you may not get it that first time, but you've got to stay in touch with them. You got to garden that lead, you know, work it. So, right. and the same with a joint venture partner or anything else that you would. Exactly. Exactly. So it's all relationship building. And and that's what a CRM does. It does. It helps you be more efficient and effective at gardening your clients and your leads. Uh, uh, What about the reverse side of technology? We've seen a lot of companies coming into real estate. You know, the the low cost websites will buy your house if you don't sell it or, you know, the um, people like uh, Zillow, Open Door, yep. those kind of technologies. How do you see? Yeah, you know, what what are what do real estate agents need to be thinking about to counter that kind of leverage of technology? We just um, we just along that note, I do want to say something because it's a- along the same vein, uh, which is the Zillow uh, Zestimates that they have, um, which is such an contradiction like so Zillow's going to tell you what your house is worth and they're going to also try and buy it at the same time so there's they're running into a a problem with that um we just told our students we created for them a postcard to send out to the farm area 
tell them whatever you do, don't use Zestimates. It's the worst thing a homeowner can do. And um, we feel the same way about what you're talking about with iBuyers, you know, Zillow Homes and and uh, Open Door, because they, first of all, they're not iBuyers. So let's just re- get real clear on that distinction. It's it's a shame that somebody had some really good marketing and put it out there called iBuyers, because a buyer of real estate they buy with emotion. Buyers buy to move in. Buyers buy to raise a family. So there is a different relationship that a buyer has. These people, they're investors. We should call them I investors because Open Door is not committed to giving that homeowner the highest possible price like a real estate professional could do. Their commitment is to get that house as cheap as they possibly can. Why? Because they're going to flip it. If they're going to flip it and sell it quickly, why the heck wouldn't a homeowner invest another 30 or 60 days for that same time frame? and get that money that those corporations are going to be making on them. And here's a really the really flippy thing, Paul, is that how that whole system works is that they'll tell the homeowner, first of all, just think about it. If I were if I were buying your house, Paul, and I came to you and said, Paul, I'm going to buy your house and I'm going to tell you how much your house is worth. And I'm going to be the buyer. Like, would you trust me telling you what your house is worth if I have a vested interest to get it at the lowest spot? But that's what the I buy a thing is. Well, I'm going to go on a rant in just a minute, Paul. I'm sorry. So you've got. So that's number one. Number two is after you sign the contract, I'm going to give you a list of things that's wrong with it that I want you to pay for. Now, you'll pay for it at the closing. So I'm going to pay you even less than what we agreed to. And by the way, Paul, that list of improvements is done after the homeowner signed the contract with the company that they're selling. It's let me tell you something. The open the I vester is the worst thing for homeowners. And I tell my students, you you got to help homeowners because they don't know. You want a quick sale? You know what? I, I, I tell my students, Paul, you tell the homeowner, listen, I'll buy your house. If that's that's the only benefit. If you want to sell it in the next like 30 minutes, I can do that. I'll pay you myself. Let me buy your house for real cheap but I'll do one better. I'll put it on the market. I'll charge a full commission. When I do sell it, I'll split the profits with you, Mr. And Mrs. Hana Hana. I mean, that's a great deal. So everybody wins. Anyway, sorry. I went <laughs> off. You, you touched a nerve, Paul. Oh, good. <laughs> let's, uh, let's continue in that vein. We're talking about yeah. real estate agents and not being investors. And it, Oh, my God. It, surpri- it, surpri- it surprises me how many... Is it... A lot of the real estate investors I work with are always uh, saying, you know, you should have a power team, you should have a mortgage broker, you should have an accountant, and you should have an agent, but you should have an agent that is an investor, that understands the investing marketplace. Do you see that as being important? Or Yeah, it, you know, it, uh, I, if, you know what, if there is a mistake I made in my life, Paul, because I haven't made many. <laughs> if but if there was one that I didn't buy real estate when I first got into real estate, I started real estate. Paul was 19 years old. I'm 50 something now. And um, so I've been in this business more than half my 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 life on this planet. And uh, and I only started investing in real estate uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, so one of the values of owning real estate is time. 
Yeah, what did you say that that, that what was that down in Canada? The 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 blue collar Hamilton. Blue? Hamilton. 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 Yeah. Oh, like the play. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> or one of our our founding fathers here in the U.S. But anyway, um, if I if you bought in Hamilton five years ago at one hundred and fifty, let even say you bought a real spanky house at two hundred thousand, like you said, and today it's a minimum a half a mil. That's a nice return. Three hundred grand in five years. That's the val- I don't have to tell your listeners that are investors. They know the value of time uh, when it comes to buying real estate and cash flow and et cetera. But um, but as far as real estate professionals, it blows my mind that they are not investing in real estate. Um, now, part of that, though, is they're living from commission check to commission check. And um, but they get trapped in that cycle sometimes, like it becomes a way of life for them. And they have to focus and work at breaking the cycle. You know, we all listen. We all know what habits are, right? doesn't matter what the habit is. It could be smoking. It'd be going to the gym. It could be waking up the same time or going to bed the same time, watching TV, the same show like that. We all got habits. And one of the habits we also have is creating the same results that we've been creating, which so if an agent is trained themselves to live from commission check to commission check to just get enough business for that month just to get by. Then they and they do that again the next month, the next month. Then it actually becomes a habit. It's not a circumstance anymore. So they really have to focus on breaking that bad habit of um, of struggling financially. And um, so, but that's how do you do that? It's you 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 hang out with people like you, Paul, and listen to podcasts like this and etc. But anyway. I mean, there are a lot of real estate agents who are part time, aren't there? I mean, there's. I think here in Hamilton, Burlington, real estate board, there's about 2,400 real estate, registered real estate agents. Mm-hmm. And one of the big local real estate agents was telling me, and she owns three offices, she's maybe got 50 agents working for her. And she said it used to be 80 20, you know, 80% of the houses were sold by the top 20%, the classic 80 20 rule. Yes. But she said now it's more like 95-5. So 95% of the houses sold are sold by the top 5% yes. of those agents. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what does that agent who's not in that top 5%, you know, what are the characteristics that are going to make them successful? What's going to get them towards that top 10%? What are the things that you would be teaching? What, what I'd say to them, well... I, I have always said that, you know, even in a in a, a market like we've seen, it's always listings of the name of the game. You need to list the last. But what I believe, it's not just listings, but it's inventory. And uh, I'll distinguish that in a second um, because I just want to finish the, the, the thought about what you said about the how do you become in the top five, 10 percent. So there is a strategy when it comes to listings. But the other thing, it's also attitude. So um part of what keeps people in the bottom 95% is they look Paul at the 5% and they say I'm not that so they focus more on the club that they're in the 95 by saying and looking too much at the other 5% I wish I could be that Oh, they're just lucky or yeah, I can't ever be because they are 
et cetera, et cetera. So one of the common things I've been training agents, I told you more than half of my life. And one of the common denominators that I've seen about successful agents is they do not compare themselves or look at what other agents are doing. They may look at them to get ideas, but they don't compare themselves to them. They compare themselves to themselves. They run their race. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I ran the New York City Marathon. And for people that can't see me because we're doing a podcast, you wouldn't believe me because I'm really fat. <laughs> and you say he's lying. No, I did. I ran the New York City Marathon, 26.2 miles. I did it to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Now, Paul, when I was training to run this marathon, I was in uh, San Diego, California. I had just done a seminar. I, was, I, went, I got dressed, went to the gym as part of my training to get on the treadmill. And, and I'm running there. And, and there's a guy right next to me, Paul. And he was thin, blonde hair handsome, you know, good looking guy like you, Paul. And he was he wasn't running, Paul. He was floating. Now, meanwhile, I'm on the treadmill. I'm huffing and puffing. Everybody at the manager thought I was having a heart attack. I'm sweating. It was a horrible sight. And I had this thought for a moment in my head when I saw Mr. Skinny guy in my peripheral. I said to myself, see, I'm not like this guy. I don't have his body. That's a runner's body. Look at how good he is. I, I should I even be doing this? Is this dangerous? Like I started questioning myself. And then I said to my then I coached myself. I said, hang on a second, Daryl. I should be proud of the fact I'm even on this darn treadmill doing this to raise money for leukemia. And my last thought I had, Paul, was Daryl, run your race, not his. So one of the things I've noticed about successful, the top 5%, they run their race. And right? when they started real estate, they were passionate about real estate, what real estate can do. And they were passionate about same thing with the investor. You know, when you're just getting into investing, sometimes you look at people that got like 100 uh, you know, units. You're like, oh, I don't even have one. I can barely pay my own mortgage. You can't. You have got to stay focused on on your vision, on your goal, because you're going to bed with you. You're waking up with you and you've got to you know, believe in you and support you. If you don't support you 24 seven, then who the heck is it going to? And um, so that's one of the big things. Now, logistically, uh, to go back to your question about what should they do, uh, they got to focus on building inventory. You know, one of the analogies I use is if, if, if I owned a shoe store and I sold all my shoes, I'm going to be in a heap of trouble, right? Because that's my business. So I got an empty store. So if I sold shoes for a living and I had a good day and I sold, I don't know, 10 pairs of shoes, what do I do as a shoe owner is I replenish those 10 pairs. I got to reorder. And real estate's the same way. Our product, our shoes is the listings an agent has. And if you have no listings, you have an empty store. So you've got to not just get listings, Paul. You've got to build, build them and maintain them. Never have your, your shoe store empty. Right. So. And how does somebody deal with the fear of failing? Because that's probably the other side of that kind of mindset attitude that you spoke. I just wanted to take a moment to talk to you about strategy and how you can use a one-page document to really lay out the plans, the vision, the values, and the steps that you need to implement an effective strategy for your business. It's a free one-page sheet that you can download from my website. 
if you just go to the bottom of any of the podcast episodes in October of 2021, uh, then you'll see a form at the bottom of that uh, podcast episode, and you can download the form there. Enjoy. Back to the show. Yeah, it's 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 along that same lines. I think I think that first of all, you have to I was talking so my son is in his twenties and and he's just found his job that he loves, which uh <laughs> blows my mind. Well, some people say it's they're not surprised. He, he's in he's in uh, telephone sales for uh for uh, uh he's like a lending broker and um he loves a phone. He talks like, you know, three and a half hours of talk time a day on the phone constantly, day in and day out. It's amazing. So he loves it. So we were talking about that. The reason why it's so important that you love what you do for a living, because there's going to be days that you hate what you do. You're not going to like what you do. You're going to be uncomfortable with what you do. And it's when you love it, it helps counteract those days that are really hard and stressful or you don't like. So if you have, so everybody has those days, the the fear of failure being part of it as well. What counteracts that is you believe in your vision that you have for your family or for the job that you do. You know, Paul, if people look at this is like a little trick is that whatever you're doing, if you believe that you are making a difference in the world, which I believe no matter what somebody is doing, they are making a difference. But if who you are is committed to making a difference in the world, helping people and being a real estate agent is merely the tool that you are using to accomplish that commitment, that helps deal with fear, worries, and concerns. Because when you have it to be about others, there ain't room for you to focus on others and be fearful at the same time, because fear lives over here where you are. But when you're focusing on others, then it's you're over there with them. You can't be in two places. Like parents is a perfect example. When it comes to parenting, anybody has a parent, they'll we'll create miracles in our life if it's involving our children. We're that passionate. We love our children so much that we will move heaven and earth for them. Like there's no, there's no like I'm afraid to do something, or I don't have time to do something, or I'm too busy to do something, or I don't like to do something. No, man, you step up. There ain't no room for how you think, feel, and believe when it comes to your parents. You are in action in your life because that's who you are as a parent. And that's the same thing that a business owner who's does, you know, that's successful is they have that love for their job, their business, like you a parent has for a kid. Okay. Now you mentioned your son and telesales. That's uh, where I started my sales career back at yeah, age 19. I was in uh newspaper advertising. Wow. And the one thing we had in each cubicle was we had a mirror okay. in front of yes. us. And the reason was you, you would, you know, you're on the phone, you're going to smile because that comes across on the phone. Yes. And you've written a book on smiling and I don't know if it's in the book, uh, but I've seen, it's, it's interesting, kind of varying stats. You use more muscles to smile, less to frown. And I, but I've seen the contour of that. But yes. what was, what was your interest? Yeah, you know, wh- why did you get interested in smiling? Why did you write a book on smiling? Oops. Well, Paul, it's interesting. I was taking. Uh, first of all, I've always been a student of um, of of what it, it means to be a human being, and part of that. Um, just, I'll do a sixty second background. I, I, my dad passed when I was fourteen, and um, 
my mom, you know, she wasn't doing well when that happened. So I literally had to make the funeral arrangements down to even getting the casket. So it was really crazy for a 14 year old to be going through that. You grew up. Wow. I grew up super fast, super fast. And um, which resulted in me um, becoming an emancipated minor uh, at 16, which meant uh, it legally I was now considered an adult. And um, so I got my own apartment at 16. And I was basically, you know, living on my own, working odd jobs and still going to school. I didn't drop out of school. Um, now, I had a problem in high school. Um, th- so but that's another story. I did finally graduate and I went to college and da 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 da. And, and now I'm talking to you. <laughs> but uh, uh, because I didn't have. Listen, when you're when you're a guy uh, uh, in New York uh, at 14, 16, well, essentially 14, not having any parental advice on what it means to be a human being. You know, that story could have gone one of two ways. And uh, I thank God that it went the more positive direction. But I had to self-teach myself, man. I, I had to. So I read so many motivation books, took so many courses, uh, really to try and find who I was. And so I've always been that way. And um, I, I took a course on the science of happiness by Berkeley University. Uh, several years ago. And it was at that class that they talked about smiling and the power of smiling. There was a a segment on smiling. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Like who would ever thought to study smiling? And the more I learned about it in that class, I was like, this is like some kind of magic tool here. (laughs) Like, you know, if you smile, magic happens like, like Disney pixie dust. So I went on this crazy passionate looking into other studies. And I started learning from other scientists about the chemistry. I mean, it's just crazy where it brought me. And so I started blogging, video blogging on Facebook about this. And so my publisher, McGraw-Hill said, man, you should write a book on this. Hence, that's, that's how it all came about. So why is that, why is that important to businesses or relationships? Every study, you know, of course, you know, if, if you ha- if you give me three hours, I can probably just talk about smiling. So I'll try and really summarize it here. There has there's been so many studies that have shown that people that smile are more open. They're more receptive. Um, they spend more money. So when they're happy, there's less resistance to to life. Uh, they're more attractive. They have better relationships. I mean, really, it's 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 an amazing thing, uh, smiling. And from a, a that's that's an external. From an internal, it's like an antidepressant because what happens when you smile? The muscles tell the brain to generate the feel good chemicals: dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins. And I created an acronym for those chemicals because I'm not smart. I told you I was living on my own at 16. I barely made it to college and I was a theater major. So there you go. So how I remember so how I remember those scientific chemicals is I took the letter from each one, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and I created this acronym DOSE. So every time you smile, you give yourself a dose of those four chemicals. Those four chemicals are associated with happiness. There was one of the studies that were done by Botox, just to just to reference it real quick. Yeah, they found that people who have Botox in one of the 
the 14 muscles that are associated with smiling, they actually did the study and found that they had an increase in depression. And the reason why, Paul, is because the Botox numb the muscles that generate the feel-good chemicals. It was like, turn the light switch off for these people. So then Botox, they hired another scientist to figure out, well, maybe we could do the reverse. Maybe we can use the uh, to numb the frown muscles. Would that help? And there was actually a study done that it does, that it actually helped uh, clinically depressed people uh, turning off those negative muscles. Is that cool? That I'm telling you, cool. I can go on forever about this topic. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a challenge for you because we started off the, the whole thing talking about the pandemic. What, how do you smile in a pandemic? Yeah, what, yeah. Ma- masking. I mean, that's- well, that's, that's why I don't talk about it too much anymore, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> now, you see, okay, so there's a, there, there is a very good point about that. There is there's something called facial feedback theory, which... Um, they also found that people that have a lot of facial work done, plastic surgery, they actually have uh, worse communication skills because part of when you're talking to somebody, there's these little micro, Paul Ekman did a whole study on this, that the, when, you, when, when you look at somebody else and you're talking to them and they're talking back, so you're having a conversation, the, is, we're mimicking each other's muscle, facial muscles a little bit. We don't even realize it. And what's happening in that process, Paul, is by you mimicking unknowingly some of my facial expressions, you don't just hear my communication, you feel it. That's how important our faces are and facial expressions. And so one of the problems that we've seen because of the pandemic and because of the mask, really communication is broken down. And, you know, you can I'm not saying that the the divide and the craziness that's happening in the world is because we're wearing masks. But I will tell you, it's certainly not helping communication. So we've taken basically a really important skill set away in communications by covering it up. Now, I'm not saying I'm against masks. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I'm for masks because I do believe there is a thing called the pandemic and we should be doing whatever is, is the scientists say to do. So I just want to be clear on that point. Um, but I, one other thing, though, is the smiling is also good for the individual. So, so if, if you're covering up your face and it hurts communication, but it's still important for you to smile whenever you can, it's an antidepressant to any negative thoughts that you have. If, if people wanted to do a study a, a little for themselves is try to get really ticked off and angry about something and smile at the same time. And you will notice it is physically impossible to be angry and smile at the same time. Okay. I'm going to try that next time I get road rage. Yes. There you go, Paul. <laughs> Let's just smile. Let's smile. At the... I tell, I tell people, if you're having an argument with somebody, don't you? Don't yell at them. Just smile at them because a couple of things will happen. Number one is they're going to get First of all, you're living longer because studies show people smile more. They actually live long. So so first of all, you're happy. You're living longer. And the other person is getting upset with you because you're smiling at them, which means they'll actually die quicker <laughs> and that'll make you smile more. So it's a real it's, it's a great it's like cycle a of circle, life. Right? Yes, it's a big <laughs> circle. And just smile them to death is what I say. All right. So I have a couple of questions I like to kind of ask all my guests. Um, sure. Favorite favorite personal brand or brand, and why? Okay, this is gonna 
this I'm going to tell you this, the favorite brand that I have, nobody's ever heard of them called uh, Dyson Industries. Now, I, uh, I, I, now I have because I'm from the UK. So, uh, OK, <laughs> well, it's not the Dyson you're thinking about. Oh, okay. and um, it's it's another it is a, this is this is a guy that does uh, construction work and he's going to be doing a new patio and a pool in my backyard. <laughs> now, why would I why would I pick him? I will tell you because I got to tell you something, Paul. I, I know you that you were going to ask me this question. And I thought, who? Why is this brand brandtastic to me? Is <laughs> be just to use your your word is because this guy, Kevin, did I say Dyson? I meant Diamond Diamond Industries. The, the, the reason why Kevin Diamond, why I love the brand so much is because of how he makes me feel. This is this is really I, I'm going to tell you some Paul. I wasn't I didn't I didn't think of this, but because of your question, I said before I do this interview with Paul, who who is who is a brand that I love, and what does it mean to to a brand? And I, I just going through this process, I, I realized that a, what a brand is, it's how it makes people feel, right? And and how Kevin makes me feel is I can trust him, that he's responsive that he cares about the project that I want to have for my house and for my family. Like there's a feeling I get from Kevin. I just love Kevin. I'm like, I'm already depressed about when the work is going to be finished. I want to stay involved with Ke- I Cause the, so it's how you make. So that's what I love about. That's the brand that I love is, is, is diamond industries. And this guy who's doing the work for me. So wonderful. That's a great example. Uh, recommended business book or podcast that you like. The first, the first business book that I read was a motivational speak and grow rich. I was, um, I was, uh, 16 years old when I read that, when I went on my own, uh, by N- Napoleon Hill, that's number one. The second one, uh, which was started my business marketing warfare by Jack Trout and Al Reese marketing warfare is an old book, dated information, dated but the distinctions and concepts are valid today and incredible. And it's a fun, powerful reading book. And the last one is Dan Kennedy. Anybody that is in direct mail knows the name Dan Kennedy and um, anything by him. I just love so. Right. Wonderful. A current tool or resource that you're enjoying using. So part of what I learned during the pandemic is building a team, how important that was and empowering the team and da, da, da. And so for communication, because we weren't working in the office, how could we create that sense of family and team? So anyway, we use a software called Asana and I love Asana. It is where all of our projects, all of our to-dos, everybody's to-dos, communication, yada, yada. It's the bomb. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. I use a similar one called Basecamp. Which, uh, yes, similar, similar kind of process and a favorite quote. Well, um, my, 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 uh, I've got a few. So, uh, breakdown okay. equals breakthrough is not really a quote, but it's maybe more of a philosophy. But, um, we use that a lot during the pandemic, you know, when there's always you, how, you know, a business is about levels of breakthroughs. So that you could call them milestones, but you want to you you want to have a breakthrough in your business or in your relationships or whatever. You can't have a breakthrough without a breakdown. So 
breakdowns can be the catalyst for the breakthroughs. So when something doesn't go the way you want or that you see that you think it should, yeah, that could be a breakdown, but that could be a good thing as long as you turn that breakdown into a breakthrough. You become stronger from it. The real estate industry got stro- had a breakthrough in the breakdown called pandemic. Um, so that might be an example. I will tell you one other, just a, a shout out to my mother who, who's passed um, and uh, many years ago, but she told me something I'll never forget is show me your friends and you show me who you are because it rubs off on you. And that's why people hanging out with you, Paul, learning from you, listening to these, po- uh, these, these podcasts is an important thing because that helps develop you and get to you for your next level. So, yeah. Wonderful. Great, great insights. I really appreciate you sharing that personal story as well about you 14 years old. And that's, that's incredible. As you say, that, that could have gone both either way. So yep. it's yep. incredible. Um, how can people get hold of you? How can they find out about your program? What's yeah. So, um, and this is a marketing thing too. I guess I, I teach, uh, our students is, um, having one social media handle. So I have one. So whether it's a website, whether it's YouTube, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, TikTok, doesn't matter. It's Daryl Speaks, D-A-R-R-Y-L Speaks, S-P-E-A-K-S.com for the website. But any social platform, Daryl Speaks, I own it. <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a great branding and marketing tip. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. And does, does your program, can that work for any real estate agent, be that Canadian, U.S.? Yes. Uh, um, it can, if, if they're a real estate agent working uh, listings and working with buyers, um, yeah, this this program, uh, it's called the Power Program. It's based on one of the three books that I wrote, How to Become Power Agent Real Estate. We have that registered trademark. Power agents are you know, a certain type of people. They're committed to serving, not selling, committed to coaching, not closing. Uh, we're not about scripting people to death. We're about using metaphors and analogies, talking from your heart, not your head. Um, you know, I've been throwing out some metaphors and analogies, like the the chess example, or when I, you know, talked about some of those things. So, um, yeah. So, um, what was the question? Does anybody can <laughs> Canadian or U.S. Anybody yes, Canadian or U.S. They can they can become a power agent. Yes, sir. And you mentioned it's for buyer agent. Something that uh, I've, has always intrigued me: some brokerages split up the, yep. so they just have se- just purely selling agents, and that's all they do is, yep. is, and then they just have some that just work with buyers rather than. Is there an advantage to that, or is there a reason for that? Do you think? Or? Uh, I'll be honest with you: I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard. Um, so you're talking about individual brokerages that you know have done something like that? Yeah, I'm thinking of somebody I know who who's you know he's under the Remax banner, but he has his own office. Okay, so he has a team. Yeah, and he has a team of maybe you know, half a dozen selling agents, and then he has a team of maybe six, seven, eight buyers agents. But never, th- typically, one won't do the other. Yeah, yeah. So when it's a team like that, so that that makes sense. So yes, a lot of teams they'll have. So a team is different than like a broker owner, right? So if let's say my my brokerage was, you know, using the Remax because that's what you said, uh, Remax Power Realty, right? And I own the office, right? 
I'll have a bunch of agents working in that office. And let's say, Paul, you're one of them and you're a top agent. Then you start bringing people under you to work on your team. But I'm still the broker, right? So in, in the team scenario, that's, com- that's not uncommon. I'm not saying it's common, but it's not uncommon. Where they'll say, okay, they create a machine. They'll say, all right, we have a, a sales coordinator who will, when we sell a house, she'll deal with or he'll deal with the paperwork and making sure everything's ordered timely, yada, yada, putting things into the CRM. Then we'll have the people who work primarily with the buyers. So there'll be buyers, agents and working that. Then we'll have some that'll work with the sellers and doing getting listings. So yeah. So what they do is basically compartmentalize the the job descriptions of, of a robust, like that team leader, they would do everything or could do everything. But it's for some agents, like my wife, when she was an agent, her name's April. And uh, April hated going on listing appointments and doing all that stuff. But man, she loved working with buyers. And I've seen her, man, she's brilliant working with buyers and showing property. So that was her skill set. And so her team leader uh, had her just do that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Daryl. Uh, that's been a great opportunity to speak to you today. Learned a lot. And uh, I'm sure the people listening will be the same. And uh, we wish you any final parting wisdom or apart from smiling. Um, well, first of all, I do want to say, you know, thank you for what you do for the industry and all the people that, you know, that you touch because you do, you help people. And uh, and that's that's an incredible thing. So so thanks for doing that. Uh, the, the last thing I would say uh, for just everybody in general so I guess what I've already said that we don't just help people buy or sell or, you know, there's there's a higher purpose that we have in touching people's lives somehow that they, you know, they you can make their life better uh, somehow with what you're doing and focus on that. And the money really is a gauge as to how many lives you've touched. So focus on serving, not selling, focus on touching people's lives and the money will follow. Thank you. I love that. I love that final piece of money. Uh, that's great. That's a great quote to finish with. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, wish you the best. Have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, sir. You as well. Well, what did you think? Was that fantastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business and real estate personal brand? So what's stopping you? Get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate personal brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free real estate personal brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have yourself a brandtastic day.